Today's bonus episode is an audio recording from one of my appearances last month in Montclair, New Jersey. It was an amazing night. Hundreds of people were there. Hillary Frank was there. And now you can be there too, in some small way, by listening to this episode. The event was hosted by Wachung Bookstore and held at Temple Nair Temid. I was so lucky to be joined by Hillary Frank, who asked me some really thoughtful, smart questions about my work on parenting. If you don't know her, Hillary is the creator of the podcast, The Longest, Shortest Time, and Here Lies Me, and the author of the book, Weird Parenting Wins. Big thanks to her and to all of you who came out and asked her questions at the end. And now, here's Hillary. I am so happy to be here with Emily, um, and we're grateful that we could be here at Nair Tamid. Thank you to Nair Tamid for hosting us and to Wachung Books for putting this on. Um, so Emily. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Montclair, uh, Bloomfield. We're in Bloomfield. Um, so your book is called The Family Firm. Yeah. And you focus on what you call the business of parenting. And as I was reading the book, I couldn't help thinking so much of parenting and parenthood feels emotional. It's all emotionally charged. But when I think of business, I think we want to take the emotion out of that. So can you explain what you mean about like making parenting a business? Absolutely. So um, I think that when we, when we first engage with someone, we like get married to them. We sort of like trust that we're going to like build this life together and we like each other. And it's, it's like pretty, it's not easy always, but you know, you kind of have your, you're doing your stuff and, and you're doing your, your things separately from each other. And it's like, great. And you get together, and you have dinner together and it's very relaxed. And then you have a kid. It's like, oh my God, like we have to do so many things that we didn't think about that we were going to have to do. And we have to do them all at the same time. And then and you kind of get your feet under you and then your kid gets a little older and the family firm sort of is kind of, at least for me, motivated a lot by the experience of having at least slightly older kids where the logistics sort of start being like this enormous part of your life. So it's like this, you know, th this kid has to be here at this time, this person has to be here at this time, like there's the birthday parties, who's going to be in charge of this? And you end up with this enormous management problem. I think what happens often there is, although you are basically running what I refer to as a small to medium-sized enterprise, uh, <laughs> you are doing it with the tools of like two people who can just lay around on the couch whenever they want and never have to do anything. And, and somehow that's like not meshing. And I think often we end up in this situation where you think, well, it's just gonna work out because we love each other. And I guess the message of the book is like, you could love your partner, but still want them to like complete their Asana tasks. And that if you in fact like structure things so people know more about what is expected, so you've actually sort of thought deliberately about the choices you want to make and how you want your day to go and who's going to do what, that you could actually have more time to like lay on the couch or do the things that you like to do before because you aren't sort of constantly fighting fires on the logistics side. And so I think that's, that's hard. And some of the message of the book is, is almost to get people to recognize, I think, that like just because we are having an email exchange about this like experience doesn't mean I don't like you. Like it's not that I don't like you and that's why I'm emailing you. It's just that I, we are also like trying to run a, a business here and, <laughs> and we can separate those. And so I sort of like, this part of the, like my husband's also an economist, so it's like much easier 
I, I think it was easier for us to take a little bit of that leap because like we're both total weirdos and 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 so I think for but I think everyone could be a little you know just marry an economist and you'll be fine. That's my that's the takeaway for today. Um, so when people go into parenting, I think that we have a lot of shoulds on our mind of like how you should get your kids to sleep and how you should feed them and um, and, and and like the things get more complicated as they get older. So what are some of the shoulds that you've heard? I think what's great about shoulds is that you can um, you can be should in both directions. Um, so you know you should uh, put their kid in there in there to sleep in their own room, but you also should have them sleep in your bed, and you also should have them sleep in their own bed in your own room, and you also should breastfeed forever, but you also should stop. Um, pretty so I think like this this culture the sort of pressures of parenting I think do come around a lot of the the sort of expectations that other people put on the things that we should do. And often our, the pressure is because like, I think you should do the things that I do. That's basically what I think. Like that's the kind of fundamental culture of interacting with other people's parenting is that they should be doing what you're doing. And the reason for that is because that's how you know you're doing a good job. And I think we gotta break that a little bit and say like, you know, I should do, I should do the things that work for me and you should do the things that work for you. And just because they're not the same things, you know, doesn't mean that like one of us is, is shooting, is shooting wrong. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult not to want other people to do, to do your things. You, you said in the book that you have a friend who, um, who fed, who ate with his kids at the table because otherwise he heard that they, they would be some serial killers. killers. Yes, he did tell me. He did tell yeah. me that that's why he did that. Yeah. 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 And then, but then what's, what's so interesting about like that example is that then I had a, another, that person's not surprisingly an economist, um, is that most of my friends are economists, but the, the conversation with another economist. And she explained that when she got married to her, to her husband, he was like, we eat dinner together. Like his family like eats dinner together at night. And she explained to me like how messed up she thought that was. And like basically the first time she went, she was like, I couldn't believe what these people are like. They're like at six o'clock, everyone is happy to be at the dinner table. Like what kind of nut jobs are these? <laughs> you know, and she had like had this like lovely childhood where she was like very close to her parents and everything worked her great. It's just like that wasn't part of their, their thing. That wasn't part of their structure. That wasn't the time that they, that they connected. And so I think there's this, this sort of the, the shoulds are, the, are, the, are so much driven by what either what we've heard or the experiences that we had mm -hmm. and you know and I mean I feel very strongly you have to be sitting at the table but I'm also I also it's not because of the serial killer thing <laughs> um it's a side benefit <laughs> so I have a kid who's turning 13 in a little more than a week good luck thank you um but I really wish that I had had this book like 13 years ago <laughs> so I'm really mad at you okay fair enough um but I think really because it would have saved me a lot of really intense arguments with my husband. Mm -hmm. And you make the argument that um, th those kinds of arguments, a lot of them are due to poor family management. So can you give us some nice. examples of um, like how this happens? Like what, where is the breakdown that causes these arguments? So I think a good, example of this is um is actually like so i'm i'm out of town today and i'm not out of town that much and i think that 
that one of the things that happens when sort of one person is the primary parent in some in sort of some domain and you haven't really talked about how that domain goes when they then are are not there things happen wrong so you know we like like we i think during bedtime that you know bedtime is at 8 30. and like i every night i do bedtime and i do bedtime and i do bedtime and, and bedtime is is 8 30. and then you imagine the scenario where like i'm out of town and like i call at 10 and my partner is like what well, like kids still is watching tv and i'm like what the fuck is the matter with you like it's like it's I, bedtime is 8 30. like are you crazy and it's like well that's i didn't that's not my rule like you know that's, and i think that is a source of conflict and what's hard about that kind of conflict, if you haven't talked about it in, in, in advance, is that how does my partner know that like my bedtime rule is really strict, but you know, my rule about like, do you have to take a bath? It's like very relaxed, right? And I feel like my personal situation is like bedtime is like very fixed and bedtime is bedtime. And like that is totally non-negotiable, but I couldn't care less if you take a bath. Like it's true, I will give my kids a bath. My husband doesn't do baths, it's not his thing, fine. So the kid's a little dirty, it's not such a big deal. Um, but I think just if we wipe them up, just right? wipe, exactly, you wipe, like wipe a little face. I mean, it's true. He basically bathes in his food, but it's like, it's like, it's fine. Um, so I, I think that the sort of message I try to talk about in the book is that, that like, there's a huge amount of value to, to discussing some of these things in an upfront way. So you can agree on what are this, or at least try to agree on some of the things that are important to you on sort of what are the aspects of parenting of your life? What are the values that you are, you find most important? Like, in both the sort of abstract, but also in very concrete ways. Like what are the things that are most important to see sort of happen every, every day? Now, I think there's like two caveats to that. So one is that if you start having those conversations and you are like the primary, the person who does most of the things, uh, it can be easy to just be like, here are the rules. I, we do this and this and this and this and this and this. I think there's a recognition, I talk about this some in the book, that like you cannot die on every hill. Like you can, everything cannot be the most important thing. It can't be that when I leave town, you have to literally replicate me because if I feel that way, I can't go. Like everything cannot be the most important thing. It's just sort of recognizing in these conversations that like some things are shared values, some things are really important to one of us and some things are, you know, more optional. And the other piece of this that's hard is when you start having conversations like this about, you know, what's important to me, what do I want to do, what's important in my parenting, especially these kind of big picture things, sometimes you will disagree. And it's really hard to have a conversation where you know you will fight. But you will fight anyway. If you disagree about some fundamental thing, like what is a reasonable dinner or what should people have for snack or what kind of extracurricular should they do or what kind of school they should go to or whatever it is, you are going to argue about that. There is no way to not have that argument. That argument is arriving. It is better to have it on purpose. Surfacing those conflicts in a moment when you like have a moment to talk about them, when you are not in a hot state, when no one just messed it up and did the thing you didn't want. I think that that is a better way, a more businessy way forward than to just wait until it comes up again and again and again and scream at each other. So you talk a lot about decision making in the book, and um, I think that uh, I, I think there's there's like endless decisions, right, so to be made decisions. that you never you never thought about the kinds of <laughs> macro and micro decisions yes. that you would have to make on a daily basis as a parent. Um, and you argue that we shouldn't just go with our gut 
which I think is like the easy thing to do, right? Like you're feeling, you're feeling emotionally charged about something and you're like, this is what I feel. I'm going to go with this choice. Um, but, but you argue that we should invest time in deliberate decision making. So can you kind of lay out what that looks like with, with your tools and model? Yeah. So I think first I will say is like, it can be okay to parent with your gut as long as you are comfortable with all of the things that come after that. So I think some of the, some of what happens when, pe when people tell me that like, that's the approach they want to take is then they explain that like, they're, they're then upset when things don't like that they're, that they are, they are then second guessing themselves, I guess is what I would say. So I think some of the kind of like, I'm going to pair with my gut works great. I think if what that means is that you are constantly questioning whether you did the right thing, then in fact, like you're not really parenting with your, with your gut in quite the way that you maybe think that, that you are. And so this sort of alternative or this, this approach that I kind of take in the book is to sort of just think through deliberately some of the, some of the things that either come up all the time and think about like, should we have policies about this? Should we have like something written down about, you know, the way we're going to operate this? And some of that is about like literally like, do we have a policy about food or like what do we want our schedule to, to look like? And some of it is this sort of bigger picture things like, you know, what are the three things that are like, that are going to serve me? Like, what are the three things that I want to see in my day every day? What are the three things that like I want the three, like this three central values that our family has? Like, what's our family's mission statement? I mean, not every piece of this is going to be, I think, helpful for every family, but taking a moment to, in many of these places, really engage with the decisions that you're making every day or occasional or you know big decisions that you make occasionally and trying to talk about them and decide what you want to do can you tell us what your family's mission statement is we're trying to raise adults and i think that's like for us that's a big that's a big piece of how we think about like what we're trying to do as parents is like get our kids ready to like leave us um, so we can lay on the couch like we did before. No, um, <laughs> but just sort of thinking about like, you know, I think for us, that's like a big, that's a big piece of it. Um, so let's talk about sleep. Yeah, let's do it. Right. So, um, so in the book, you have examples of data clearly showing that quality sleep is essential. Um, so can you, can you give us an example of like, how to manage sleep, say, like based on the data, how do you pick a bedtime? Okay, so, um, so sleep is totally great. And, uh, and we have a lot, as you said, there's like a ton of data showing that like kids, if kids do not get enough sleep, like that's, that's bad. And you can show it in sort of manipulations where you give kids even like an hour less sleep at, uh, at night for a week. And then they're like, when they do better in tests and their parents say they're a jerk and all kinds of stuff at the, at the end of the week. So there's a lot of evidence that even sort of relatively small manipulations. Now, when they tell you like, you ask like, well, what's the right amount of sleep for like an elementary school kid? It's like nine to 11 hours. That's actually an enormously large range. Um, and, uh, and not, and so the question is like, how would I know if my kid is sleeping enough? And I think what I like about this example is it's actually like not, there is an answer. So there are kind of two things you're looking for. One is like, is my kid sleepy at school? Like, is my kid seem sleepy during the day? Does teacher say that they're sleepy, like, et cetera? And the other is, um, do they weekend oversleep? So if you let your kid sleep, like if you're sort of getting them up for school every day, but then on the weekend you let them sleep as long as they want and they go like two extra hours, they're not sleeping enough. 
Um, and then, you know, you should, like, they should basically be getting up about the same time. It's like adults. Like, how do you know that you are sleep deprived? If I told you, like, it's Saturday and, like, somebody's taking your kids and you can sleep as late as you want, like, you're not getting up at the same time that you, like, don't look at me. I know you're not getting up at the same time <laughs> that, you, that you were. And so if your kid is doing that, that is a signal that they are also sleep deprived. And so you need to tighten it up. I have found, I will say, I have found with my kids that, um, that, they this is something they really internalize so relative to like some other things like don't eat so much candy where i've made no progress at all um the kind of idea that like you should like sleep is important and that you should be listening to your body's cues about like whether you are tired um like they're they are like like laser focused on whether they're they're getting enough sleep and like to the point of like tight like it's got like titrating their bedtimes by 15 minutes to try to like you know <laughs> optimize in various ways but um well, but i feel like it's something kids can sort of can, can recognize a little bit in themselves that's a great skill so you've amassed so much data um for about parenthood and kids what's some of the most surprising data you've come across in your research the place I'm mostly surprised by data is when it isn't there. Mm. Um, and so when there are, there are questions, I mean, I've talked some lately, um, various forums about like data on, on like breastfeeding um, or, you know, like treating mastitis, which is like a common breastfeeding complication or like storing breast milk or, you know, vaginal tearing, everybody's favorite topic, um, that there are a lot of the spaces in kind of pregnancy and particularly in sort of things that are, that are kind of medical but woman specific um where uh where i think we are lacking inform like we're just lacking information and it's often in places where i feel like that question is 100 percent answerable you know there's a lot of hard like there's like a lot of really hard questions in the world like what is like what is the optimal diet it's like a really hard question right it's really hard to figure out from data it's hard to do randomized trials it's hard it's like a hard question the question of like how long does breast milk stay fresh if you leave it out on the counter it's not hard like, this is a hard question. You know, people could answer that. And so there are a lot of things like that where I feel like we're just like, why don't we have that? Um, and I don't know if that's part of my soap, that's my soapbox. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of the tools in your book um, seem like primarily designed for two-parent um, households in middle to upper middle class. Um, so I want to have you talk about like parents who live outside of that. Like, what about one-parent households or people who are co-parenting with maybe an unwilling to participate parent um, and people who have fewer resources? Yeah. So I think it's I think so. One thing I'm going to say, like I think there's an acknowledgement here that a lot of the a lot of the tools in the book, or at least some of the tools in the book, are really like well suited for you know when you are trying to work out your values with someone else. And I think at the same time, some at least some of the choices in the book, talking about school choice and so on, are things where like resources by choice and there's a privilege in having those those kind of choices. What I will say is I think a lot of the book is focused on these sort of bigger decision making pieces, um, and those pieces I don't think are as specific or should not be as specific to sort of people with resources or to particular family structures. I mean, in the end, like we all face decisions pretty much no matter what our circumstances are, we all face decisions, we all face decisions under constraints. And these tools, these like decision ideas basically 
about making optimal decisions or making the best decisions for you under whatever the constraints are that you face. And so I, I think those tools may be broadly useful. And I also think it's important to, to sort of recognize that like those kind of those kind of skills are something that we could convey more broadly, that the skill of understanding data, the skill of sort of making decisions based on data, I don't think should be the purview of sort of particular groups mm -hmm. of people. So, you know, something that I really don't like with a lot of parenting books is that they're written from like a my way or the highway yeah. kind of perspective. That's why I wrote Weird Parenting Wins. Um, but uh, you know, the, the thing about those books is that a lot of the time they make you feel like you've already failed, mm -hmm. right? Because you are reading that you should have done something a certain way like three months ago or three years ago. Um, and in your book, um, you, you, you talk about how like ideally we would be adopting some of these techniques when our kids are babies or maybe even before they're born. Um, but can you give those of us hope who, um, asking for a friend, have, say an almost 13 year old, <laughs> how, can we, how can we incorporate some of these tools into like an already existing family unit? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think that these, that like, there's always opportunity to alter up what you're doing. And I think, you know, one of the things I, one of the sort of, I have this like decision framework and there's the, the fourth F is, is follow up. Is the idea that like most of the decisions we make, you can change. You can sort of change what you're doing. And I think there are opportunities in almost all of the spaces, the times we are in parenting to kind of reevaluate, you know, where we are in terms of what, what we do. And I think one thing like for a lot of parents of slightly older kids is actually the question of like reevaluating how much stuff we do, right? And so I, it, when you tell people like I wrote like a, like a business book about parenting, one of the things that people are like, oh, are you using spreadsheets to like cram more activities in? Um, and actually it's, it's like almost like the opposite. So I think a lot of the book is about like saying like, hey, you know, you should sit down and think about like, what do you want Saturday to look like? Do you want it to actually be like back-to-back -back travel soccer? In which case, like, that's awesome and enjoy yourself. But if you don't want it to be back-to-back -back travel soccer, like you may actually need to like actively choose to not have that. Um, and I think those are choices that it's not too late. It's never too late to make those, those kind of choices. And I think it's never too late to kind of sit down and have some of these, uh, have some of these conversations. So it's like, what's important to us the most, what, what are the must haves? And then how do we work backwards from there so that the other things don't take over? Yeah. Um, and and, and recognizing it. like the constraints of time, right? Like you can't have your kid sleep. Like if your kid has to go to bed at 8.30 to get the amount of sleep that they need, they cannot do gymnastics from five to nine because nine is after 8.30. And I think like, that's like, there's something very fundamental there. People are like, oh, well just like, just like get it in. No, it's at, it's a no, it's after 830, you know, and I think that that like some of that kind of recognizing like what are the big chunks and then we need to build around that and that's going to involve trade offs and like maybe you don't do gymnastics. It's okay. We're not going to the Olympics. Nobody goes to the Olympics. Okay, I'm just saying nobody goes to the Olympics. So um, I would love to open this up to audience questions now. Don't tell me your kid's going to the Olympics. I feel like somebody's going to be like, actually, my kid's at the Olympics. Like, okay. Hey. Hey. Um, you talked about you can't die on every hill, but what if your partner doesn't have a lot of hills and you do? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you compromise? 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. There's a there's a I think there's a distinction between like you can't have you can't die on every hill and you can't make every rule. So if the answer is like my partner just like is happy with whatever and is happy for me to make all the rules, then like sure, you make all the rules. I think the place where this becomes tricky is is when you expect someone to implement all of your like an infinite number of of kind of rules that you that you you want as opposed to kind of isolating. It's almost just like a cognitive overload issue. So, you know, I always think about my, when my daughter was like three, we left my in-laws with her for like, maybe she wasn't, yeah, she was like three. We left my in-laws with her for like two days. And we gave them like, I don't know, six single space pages of like basically like, <laughs> here's what happens in every 15 minute block of the day. And like, here are all the things. And you know, the thing is like, that wasn't very helpful because they missed some of the important things like don't put the rice in the burrito. Um, and then, you know, things sort of like went off the rails. Um, and, and I think we would have been similarly, like th that kind of control, you kind of, ha you have to figure out how to give, how to give up. So prioritize. You need to prioritize. Yeah. And, and also like to recognize that like, it's okay to do things a little bit for sometimes people have like a little different things, the ways they do it. It's going to be okay. <laughs> it's okay. I feel like on social media, there's so much out there, like you should, a lot of the should, you should do this, and um, a lot of language around gentle parenting. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your thoughts, your perspective on what gentle parenting is. It's kind of hard to even really find a definition. Yeah. No, it's not really well-defined, right? There's not like a sort of, you know, unlike some of these things about parenting where you'd be like, oh, it's that book, you know, the, the four S's, you know, it's like, okay, how many ever, five S's, however many S's are, like that's, the, that's this book. The gentle parenting is sort of this like nebulous thing that's kind of like sounds, it sounds good because you don't like, what's the alternative? Like mean parenting is <laughs> what I adopt. Um, you know, look, I think in, in there's a kind of core idea in a lot of this gentle parenting, which I would describe as like listening to your kid and kind of using some of these scripts to kind of try to diffuse situations. And in my view, many of those scripts can be very, very useful. Um, and I, they, they have worked with my kids in various ways. And I think recognizing some of the, almost like some of the emotional height that you, that you come to uh, when you are having co complicated interactions with your kids and thinking about diffusing that. I think that's actually a very central point of a lot of this gentle parenting, which also comes up in almost every other kind of like parenting discipline thing that you talk about, even, you know, things with timeouts for a bit. Um, you know, there's always like kind of don't get mad, like, you know, diffuse your own, your own self. Where I think this becomes more complicated is it when we get into a situation where it, there are, you're kind of trapped in something where it's very, it's very difficult to implement. So the most, probably the most evidence-based thing we know about kind of discipline in these age ranges is just that consistency is important. That whatever is the thing that you adopt, you need to do it every time. So this comes up in like, you know, one, two, three magic, where it's like one, two, three, timeout. So like every time you have to follow, follow through on that because that's how people sort of, that's how your kid like understands the idea of consistency and that's how they come to, that's what they sort of come to expect. I think that can work fine in gentle parenting if you are able to be consistent. And I think where people often run into an issue is like sometimes you need to leave the house with your children with their shoes on. And you may not be able to like negotiate shoe putting on for an infinite period of time. Like at some point you may just need to put on their shoes. Um, and that, I think that's the, so thinking about this as kind of a part of a, of a kind of overall parenting kind of 
parenting discipline structure, I think can be can be super, super useful. Um, and uh, and at the same time, like probably it is worth thinking about some of the logistics in a way that is, you know, that is helpful, you know, that like possible to implement. Hi, um, I'm curious about your criteria for implementing policies. You used that word before. An example would be like when kids can have treats after dinner. So for example, like we're pretty laid back and we generally will let them have something after dinner, but every once in a while, my husband will pull like, we don't have treats every night after dinner. And it's like an arbitrary thing that comes in and my kids are pretty laid back too, but I guess it's like at what stage, like, and you answered it a little bit in your, um, just now with the idea of consistency, but do you always have to be consistent? Like when, do, like, when does a policy, like, like at what point can that be useful and at what point is it just like another rule that we're trying to follow? Yeah, I mean, I think partly that's like enormously dependent on what your kids are like. So there are like, you know, so my, for my kids, if you want, if we said like, you know, they're like in general, we have no desserts. That's actually not true. In general, we have always have desserts, but imagine the policy was no dessert. And then one day we said, we're gonna have dessert. Then they would ask every single future day, like for infinity, right? And so, and I think that like, that is annoying um, basically. And so I think some of this is about figuring out like how are people gonna, like how are your kids gonna respond to sort of particular things? I also think there is a, and this is something I learned from teaching, that, that there is a lot of value to externalization in, in, in rules, right? So, so we have a set of policies about dessert involving ice cream, that ice cream is available on Thursday and Friday nights. This looks very quite arbitrary about like why that, you can always have a dessert, but anyway, whatever. Ice cream is only for Thursday and Friday, I don't get into why. Um, <laughs> and we, it's written down, it's in the like, the Google Doc, with the food policies. <laughs> but, but when you say, when they say like, can I have ice cream, it's a Tuesday, you just say like, I'm sorry, I wish that I could do that, but it's in the, it's in the Google Doc. And that's, and that's, you could do that with your students too. You're like, I wish I could change this, but it's in the syllabus I wrote and fully control. Um, and, but I think there is this sort of, this piece, I mean, it's I'm like joking, but I think there is, there is some of this of just like figuring out kind of what, what works. And there probably are places, even with your own kids, where like this kind of sort of having a consistent policy would help you feel better about it, would help them feel better about it. Maybe it is not about desserts. Maybe it's about some other other thing where like they want to take more, they want to understand more, what are the boundaries? Hi, I'm thankful for this last question because this would have been kind of a massive deviation otherwise. Um, I just wanted to know if you had seen any of the um, studies coming out about cadmium and lead and dark chocolate. Yeah. Um, and how bad is that? It's, <laughs> it's, fine. it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, the amounts, um, so look, it's not good to eat. So the lead is like kind of the main thing here. It's not good to eat like lead, don't go eat lead. Um, but the, um, the amounts in those in, that they are finding, this is not an amount of lead. This is not your main source of lead. I don't know if it makes you feel better or not. But like basically sort of the, the kind of problematic levels of lead we see are like basically in water um, or in peat or in the old bathtub that's like on your back porch or in your soil, not in your chocolate bars. So, you know, I, I just like don't, I wouldn't think about that anymore, honestly. 
Hi. Just in follow-up to that, how does a study like that get to all of us and we're worried about it and you're an economist, you're smart. <laughs> we're, we're all smart, we're all we're here. All smart. Like how does that get past? Um, right, okay, so I think there's like two, sort of two versions of the answer here. So one, that particular thing, that's not really a study, that's just like some people do some consumer testing, yeah, panic headlines. Um, but I think that there's a, a, a deeper question, which is like, you know, I wrote this morning about this thing about processed food and cancer, um, which has some of the same flavor, like basically, you know, and that's a real study, like published in an actual journal that says, you know, processed food is correlated with, with cancer. And when you kind of dive into it, it's just like, just garbage because like the people, the sort of people who eat a lot of processed food are different on like every single dimension that you could possibly imagine and more. Um, and so to sort of say like it's the fault of breakfast cereal when every other thing is different, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and so I think there's an interesting question I posed to my class the other day, sort of like given that that paper is very poor, like whose fault is it that you are seeing it, right? Is it, um, is it the fault of, you know, is it the fault of the people who wrote the paper? because you shouldn't write papers if, you're, if you don't have any causation. Is it the fault of the media because like they should be able to read table two, um, you know, rather than just the, the headline? Um, and I think that the thing that was most interesting was the student who basically ended the conversation, everyone sort of agreed with them by being like, it's our fault. Because like if I had, was not taking this class and you hadn't explained this to me, like I would have sent that article to all of my friends. And then people would read it. And then like, what is it that, you know, like, People like when people read their stories and people like to, uh, you know, people like to write papers that are going to get covered in things and have people read them. So I guess what I'm saying is it's your fault, um, but, uh, <laughs> or maybe her fault. I don't know. It's one of you two for sure is at fault for this. Um, but I think that's, there's, there's a lot going on behind this. That's why we need more data literacy. Can you talk about when there's no secret option C? Yeah, um, sure. So, um, so this is something that that I talk, I think about a lot um, in the in the sort of space of hard decisions. I think where there are many circumstances in which we are faced with sort of two options, and because neither of them is is kind of good, uh, we never make a choice. So, I'll give you an example. Somebody yesterday in my Instagram Q and A has asked you know, it was like about marriage. And she said like, I want a second kid and my husband doesn't. And like, how can we both be happy? <laughs> and I think what's, what's sort of useful to recognize, and I think part of what she was saying is like, we're just, we're going along and we're looking for this secret option C. We're looking for something where like, we can both have another kid and also not have another kid. And I know it seems unlikely, but like, I'm just, if we wait long enough and we kind of don't make, we sort of don't commit to one of these things, there's always this thing out there. And like, that one's really obvious because of course you can see like there can't be something there. But I think in, in, in choices where it's, it's maybe less black and white, I think we do still, you know, you get to something where it's like, okay, I could do option A or option B and they're both, they're both bad. Like they're both not the thing I wanted. So people, somebody asked me about this in the context of like, I want to have a VBAC, but also like I don't want to have an emergency C-section. Like I, I want to try for this, but also like this sort of, and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting to sort of commit to the scheduled C-section because I keep hoping like something will happen. Well, like there is no, like there's only these two options. You can try this and it might add an emergency C-section or you can have a scheduled C-section and then you won't have had a VBAC and like 
That's it. Those are the only two choices. And if you wait and wait and wait, the choice will be made for you. Like there's no way to not make that choice. There's and there isn't any secret option C. And so I think there's sort of pushing to recognize that in a lot of situations and say like, okay, when you are faced with these two choices, what you have to do is choose something that is not perfect. You have to, and once you have recognized that, I think it can actually be very helpful because you can then think about, well, how can I make whatever option, how can I make these options as, as good as I can? Because there's no sort of third thing. So how can we kind of think about making it right because either we're going to have a kid or we're not going to have a kid. Like, how can we think about what is the way we could make that, make one of those things work better? And I, I think that's sort of turning off this kind of secret option C is, uh, is part of that good decision making. What about in cases of ambivalence where you yourself are like, I want to have another kid and I don't want to have another kid and I can't make up my mind? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No one else uh, thinks that. No, yeah, no. I mean, I think that's, uh, I mean, in some sense, then you're just, you're just like, uh, see, no secret option C with yourself. I mean, it's not about, and a lot of these things I think aren't so much about, about conflict, but it's just really hard. Like, it's not, like, that's just a really hard choice because you have to recognize, like, in, like, you're taking a risk either way, like a risk of sort of disappointment either way. Mm -hmm. um, and, like those decisions they're bad that's it they're just hard it's just like hard things hi so um ooh, let's um talk screen time i feel yeah, like that's something that keeps a lot of people up at night and i actually just saw yeah, in your newsletter watch tv before bed that's what <laughs> okay yep <laughs> right you so said you had published a thing today about like you know they continue to link screen time to adhd and all of that and there are some guiding principles out there around you know the what are you having your kid watch and are you watching it together are you talking about it but like we'd just love to hear any of your current thinking to help guide the whole screen time thing yeah sure um okay so i think there's like one pretty clear thing about screen time which is you should not watch tv before bed so actually we know that like kids watching screens before like within the sort of hour or so before they go to sleep actually disrupts sleep. so that's kind of like the one sort of like screens are not great going back to the sleep the sleep business other than that, I think that we have this tendency to think of screens as bad and to have this kind of idea in our head that like, like screens are bad, so less screens is good. And like, and you, and screens are sort of like, just generally I'm gonna think about them as bad. And so then I'm gonna use them without really deliberately thinking about them because of course you have to sometimes use screens, like don't be ridiculous, but I'm just gonna kind of like feel bad about it. And that'll, that'll sort of like be how I manage this. Um, the reality is I don't think there's anything in the data that would say that some amount of screen time is bad. What is true is that screens are time that you are not doing something else. And that to the extent we have anything that suggests that there's, there are concerns with this, a lot of it's about displacement. That if, you, you know, if you're watching television for seven hours a day, then you don't have time to maybe do your homework or go to school or go outside or sleep or something else. And so that for me really frames a lot of the the screen time and the way I talk about in the family firm is the idea of separating out the kind of content questions, which are often so top of mind, from the staring at the wall questions. Like basically just saying like screen time, think of screen time as your kid is just sit, like, they're like, I'm gonna go to my room, I'm gonna stare at the wall. I'm just gonna sit there and stare at the wall. And like, and if your kid told you like for a half an hour before dinner, well, you enjoy a glass of wine and similar like the tomato sauce and make some pasta, I'm gonna sit in my room and stare at the wall. 
you'd be like, wow, my kid's the most amazing meditator. And you know, like you would be so happy about that. And, and in some sense, like that's because like the alternative in that time is not that they're doing something enriching, it's that they're like whining or bothering, like something about that. And so that may be a reasonable time for screens. And so thinking about where in your life do the screens fit that they are like taking away from that they're that they're productive, that they're a good use of time, and recognizing like people like to sit and watch TV and relax, and like that's okay, that's like part of modern life. We do that, and people probably feel it in that forever, not on screens, but another like people like to relax. It's okay, it's okay to relax sometimes. But if we get into a situation where your kid said, "Look, I'm going to sit in my room for seven hours a day. I'm going to stare at the wall," you would be like, "You know what? No, meditation. That's too much." You're not a monk, like let's do something outside. And similarly, you sort of think about screens like that. So I think for me, that's really helpful. And it, it's sort of informed a lot of how I think about navigating screens, which is like, like you can have unlimited screens on the airplane because like, that's it, you know, it's the airplane. And, you know, but during this sort of time in our, in our house, we have sometimes that screens are, are used and sometimes that they're, um, that they're off limits. But the sort of good, bad is not, I think, super helpful here. Last one. So you talked a lot about kind of you and a partner making some decisions yeah. about your family, but can you talk about when you incorporate your children into that process? I think our family has a very similar, our goal is to raise independent, self-sufficient adults. And so how does that fit into some of these parenting decisions that we think about making? Okay, such a good question. Um, and so I think the answer is like as early as possible in curated ways. So I think your, you know, your kids are like sh shepherds of their own life in some way. And so you sort of want to have them like as much as possible, I think, have some say. But on the other hand, uh, they have crazy ideas. Um, and so there's a sort of like figuring out like how can I, how can I start scaffolding sort of smaller decisions and bringing them into smaller decisions and then kind of and then sort of letting them make more decisions later and I think the hardest thing about that is letting them make choices that you think are wrong like not wrong in a kind of like this is going to ruin your life but like actually you will not enjoy signing up for the musical because you don't like to be out of the house for this many like you're not going to like staying at school until seven o'clock at night and you can tell me like you're gonna love it and we should talk about like what it's gonna look like and I'm gonna let you make that mistake. And then when the next musical comes, I'm not gonna sign up for it. <laughs> and I think, but I think that sort of like working it in and figuring out where, it, where can I give this particular kid the leeway to kind of help to sort of structure their time and make their choices and where do I need to keep the, the scaffolding in? I think that's, um, that's the challenge, but, but it's very, that piece is very doable. Um, I think one tool that we use a lot is just like sort of at times, you know, the start of a semester, like some sort of natural break in the kind of kids life schedule to sort of sit down with them and think about like, you know, what is the next six months look like? And that's also an opportunity to like think about what additional decision making are they like able to do. I will say like we try a lot to give them like to give them autonomy, like make them make their own breakfast. Um, and that's actually the thing as a parent, I find the hardest to follow through on. So like, my kids are supposed to make their own breakfast. And I like the other day, like last week, I made my son a cheese omelet every day because I had like mistakenly made him a cheese omelet once. And then every day he was like, I want a cheese omelet, I want a cheese omelet, I want a cheese omelet. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's a, it's a work. It's like, it's something that I think is very hard to follow through on. Um, 
everybody can work. Okay, so that's it for the Q&A. Thank you very much. This was really great. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Parent Data in your favorite podcast app and rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to the whole newsletter for free at www.parentdata.org. Talk to you soon.